Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest today on the program is Mary Norris, who has spent more than three decades in the New Yorker's copy department. She's out with a new book, Between You and Me, Confessions of a Comma Queen, in which she addresses some of the most common and vexing problems in language and explains how to handle them. Norris draws on examples from Charles Dickens, Emily Dickens and Ed Henry James, The Lord's Prayer, as well as from The Honeymooners, The Simpsons, and others. She takes us to see a copy of Noah Webster's groundbreaking Blue Black Speller on a quest to find out who put the hyphen in Moby Dick, on a pilgrimage to the world's only pencil sharpening museum, and of course inside The New Yorker, and her work with Pauline Kael, Philip Roth, and George Saunders. Norris is in love with language and alive to the glories of its use in America, even in the age of autocorrect and spell check. As she writes, the dictionary is a wonderful thing, but you can't let it push you around. Mary Norris, pleasure to welcome you to the program. Thank you. Pleasure to talk with you. Uh, f- fascinating, fun read. And uh, I-, I think here in a public radio audience, you're speaking to a lot of language lovers, at least I know as an announcer. If you make a mistake, you'll hear about it here in public radio. So. <laughs> Which is nice. I, I, I love language uh, myself. Uh, so maybe tell me a little bit about, about your background. You have a quite a varied background. Well, I'm from Cleveland, and I did a lot of blue-collar work before I came to the New Yorker. Um, started out as a foot checker in a Cleveland public pool when I was 15 and a half. What's a foot checker? Um, <laughs> they do have them in other cities. I think it was a Great Lakes thing. Uh, it was um, when you went to a public pool, you had to take a shower and wade through a disinfectant bath, and then you had to stop and put your feet one at a time up on this platform and spread out your toes so that somebody like me could could make sure that you didn't have athlete's foot. That was mm. the trick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... <laughs> I did that just one summer. It wasn't exactly a career move, um, but I was only 15. It was my first job. I was desperate to be financially independent. Uh, after that, I went off to college, and um, between college and graduate school, I worked in a costume company in Cleveland, and I drove a milk truck. Uh, and that was, I think, still the best job I've ever had in my life was driving the milk truck. It was just fun. And you encountered, a, that's interesting, uh, you encountered some language difficulties there. The the, the milkman, it was usually a milkman who was supposed to yell out milkman when he left the milk, right? Yes, I didn't know what to yell. I didn't like the word lady. Lady is kind of, to me, vulgar, so I wouldn't call myself a milk lady. It, you know, it just didn't sound feminist. Milk woman is a little anatomically correct for yelling outside somebody's house, but that is what I chose. I thought about milkmaid, um, but didn't go with that. It sounded like somebody who was living in Switzerland um, milking goats. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I went with milk woman, but I would muffle those last syllables, so it was just milk woman. <laughs> That was my I see. So you'd muffle the last, the woman. I see. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. You had some. You were interested in in uh, cows, agriculture. Everywhere you went, it seems like at school you you were majored well, in English, but I liked cows, and I had a fantasy of having a dairy farm. So all while I, whenever I was looking for a job, if it had something remotely to do with cows, I was interested in it. After graduate school, my first job was packaging mozzarella in a cheese factory up in Vermont. Hmm. Uh, 
Oh, it, and I, I did also attempt to learn how to milk cows, um, but it was all automated, so that wasn't quite as thrilling to attach suction to the underbellies of the cows. Now, how did you how do you connect up that with how how did you get involved with the New Yorker? I moved to New York from Vermont after I realized that if I went into the dairy industry full-time, I would be a hired hand, and I'd have to get up at 5 in the morning and be there every night at 5. I'd have to be there. And it was a little like burying myself alive. I was maybe 24 years old, and it didn't—it seemed, you know, my idea had been to retire and have a couple of cows as pets. I didn't really <laughs> seem to need to devote my the prime of life to it. So I had a sibling who lived in New York— and who was going to Paris that winter and offered me his loft to stay in. And I wouldn't have come to New York if I had neither a job nor a place to stay, but I had a place to stay so I could um, manage to look for work as long as I had some place to live. Now, Dee, my sibling, was friends with Jeanne Fleshman, who was married to Peter Fleshman, who was the chairman of the board of The New Yorker. So I met Jan and Peter through my brother, and that made it all very natural. You know, I was used to being with my, um, it was like being with family. And it was then it came out that I really did want to work at The New Yorker. And Peter had no influence in editorial. They were always separate at The New Yorker from the very beginning with his father, Raoul Fleischman, and Harold Ross. They kept business and editorial separate. So I, I always say that because I'm still sensitive at the thought that Peter got me the job. But what he did was call the executive editor for me. That was a man named Bob Bingham, and and um, say that I was going to call and would he talk to me? And so I had an interview at the New Yorker. There were no openings at the time, but Peter encouraged me to follow up on it, and I called back just before trying to get a hack license. I was going to try driving a cab, <laughs> and I don't think that would have worked out very well at all. I didn't know my way around. So fortunately, there were openings when I called back, one in the typing pool and one in the editorial library. I flunked the typing test in the typing pool, but I passed the one for the editorial library. It was a manual typewriter, and we worked on index cards, and that I was able to do without, um, you know, undue stress. And I really wanted the job, so I could be honest in the interview. And Helen Stark is the name of the head librarian, and she hired me. So that was my entry-level position. Mm. And you eventually had experiences with uh, the great writers and with, uh, with the famous editor, Mr. Sean. I wonder if you, if you have your book with you, um, if you turn to page 12, I'd like to have you read. Sure. The, the, uh, starting with, um, that was more than 35 years ago, and, and then to the end of the page. Okay, sure. That was more than 35 years ago, and it has now been more than 20 years since I became a page okayer a position that exists only at the New Yorker, where you query proofread pieces and manage them with the editor, the author, a fact checker, and a second proofreader until they go to press. An editor once called us prose goddesses. Another job description might be comma queen. Except for writing, I have never seriously considered doing anything else. One of the things I like about my job is that it draws on the entire person, 
not just your knowledge of grammar and punctuation and usage and foreign languages and literature, but also your experience of travel, gardening, shipping, singing, plumbing, Catholicism, Midwesternism, mozzarella, the A-train, New Jersey. And in turn, it feeds you more experience. In the hierarchy of prose goddesses, I am way, way down the list. But what expertise I have acquired, I want to pass along. My fondest hope is that just from looking at the title, you will learn to say fearlessly, between you and me, not I, whether or not you actually buy the book and penetrate to the innards of the objective case. Nobody knows everything. One of the pleasures of language is that there is always something new to learn, and everybody makes mistakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that's interesting. You, uh, this was a good matchup with you. You, you loved language. You got to do a job where you could use language and also all your knowledge and gain more knowledge. I think that describes people who, who love language. But, of course, not everyone does. And, and so some people complain about uh, you know, prescriptive grammar. Why don't we just let language go where it will and, and just use it uh, you know, where it goes? Well, language is going to go where it will, whether we like it or not. Even the prescriptivists have to admit that, and the, des- the descriptivists don't have to be so ferocious about defending that, because it's going to happen. Uh, <laughs> the people who are described as prescriptivists are mainly interested in what in the printed word, I think. I mean, of course, you must be terrified on the radio all the time uh, that you'll make some kind of grammar mistake. But in fact, I don't worry about speech or even email or Twitter. It's when something is going to go into print that I want it to be as near perfect as possible. And that's what prescriptivists do. we do know the rules, we try to apply the rules, and we make exceptions when the rules just don't work, you know, mm-hmm. when usage is against the rules. You cannot fight usage. Uh, and I think there's another strain as, as well that uh, I think some people find some usages more elegant, right? Just just better. <laughs> there, there's a oh, qualitative sure. difference that some people see. I was just going to say the big um, crisis in the, between the descriptivists and the prescriptivists came when Webster's came out with a third edition back in the 60s, and it included words like ain't, and actually the one that came before it also included ain't, but it told you you should use it if you wanted to be taken seriously in the literary world. Um, Webster's Third didn't make those kind of pronouncements. It just described the way people talk mm-hmm. and left it at that. Yeah. And there there are judgments that happen, aren't there? If you use certain words in certain company, you're, you're judged. Yes, it's true. It's very hard to avoid. <laughs> uh, and, and then there are some things that are, I guess, just personal. One, well, I'll, I'll just air some grievances here. One that is changing, at least in uh, in this part of the world, uh, vegetable is changing to veggies, and it's happening very quickly. If I order a vegetable sandwich, uh, I, I just stand out like a sore thumb now. 
Veggie is one of my pet peeves, too. I don't like those words that end like, I don't like nighty, and I don't like panties, any of those dainty little words. I can't bring myself to say veggie or, or order a veggie burger. And you're right, of course, <laughs> if you say vegetable, um, it sounds ridiculous. You wouldn't have a vegetable burger. And I guess, um, But another one I don't like, for some reason, is I don't like fridge. Yeah, like fridge. Refrigerator. Uh-huh. Refriger- <laughs> yes, yes, I can see that one. And I guess on the on the other side, you can be judged as, I guess, persnickety or pedantic if you insist on, you know, vegetable versus veggie against the tide. Yeah, that's true. It just you you are you're being formal at a time when it's preferred. You know, you're it's more accepting to be informal. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's take a break when we come back uh, more with uh, Mary Norris. Uh, her book is Between You and Me, Confessions of a Comma Queen. She's been at The New Yorker, copy editor there for, for many years, and a lot of uh, very interesting experiences. And uh, I'm interested to have her take us on a pilgrimage that she does in the book to the world's only pencil sharpener museum. Also, there's something called, I learned this from the book, something called the Apostrophe Preservation Society. Um, and uh, we'll uh, learn about uh, her work with Pauline Kael and Philip Roth and others as well. If you have a uh, language or grammar gripe, we'd love to uh, use this as a forum for to, for you to air your grievances. 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, toll free for you anywhere you're listening. And you can email us as well to upraxis at gmail.com. Following break. During next month's Uinta Basin StoryCorps project, Utah Public Radio will bring the recording booth to you. One of 10 stops during this year's national tour, the Vernal Library will be home to a fully equipped recording studio housed in a portable Airstream trailer. Share a story with a teacher, a favorite friend, or someone who has made a difference in your life. We begin taking reservations on June 18th. More information about UPR's Uinta Basin StoryCorps found online at upr.org. If or when, I guess, there's a big earthquake out in California, keep an eye on the water. Because we can't prevent damage, but we need to make sure that our our city still functions, that we can maintain an economy, that we can rebound back. If you lose the water, you lose the city. I'm Kai Rizdal, our infrastructure series, The Weak Link, next time on Marketplace from APM. Tuesday night at 7 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival, featuring King Lear in the Outdoor Shakespearean Theater as part of the festival experience. More information at bard.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Mary Norris, longtime copy editor at The New Yorker, and her book is Between You and Me, Confessions of a Comma Queen. You're welcome to join the conversation. We'd love to know what you think about where language is going. Perhaps you have a, a grievance you'd like to air. I have a few more. I'll, I'll air as we go along. Uh, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or upraxis at gmail.com. Here's one that just, uh, Mary Norris, that just bugs me. Um, and, uh, when I'm watching television news, ABC News is a particular offender here. Uh, they'll go for minutes and minutes without a verb. They'll use the gerund. So President Obama uh, 
you know, leaving the White House, or Hurricane Katrina approaching New Orleans, and I'm yelling at the television screen, I need a verb, I need a verb. <laughs> uh, I guess it's, they're, they're think, it, maybe they think it's headlines, but it, it goes on for minutes and minutes. And I, I think, why don't you slip back into regular English? <laughs> that is the sort of thing they use in the crawl, isn't it? Yeah. That, those prints print along the bottom of the screen. Yeah, but 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 now it's uh, it's morphed over into the verbal <laughs> expression. So, but you know that horse maybe has left the barn. I, I, what 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 do you do in that case? Do you do you? I don't know you personally. Do you fight the good fight? Correct people at parties, such. No, I feel that I do my part on the job, and um, also there's not a polite way to correct people. I don't think I have not found a way. To, it estranges people. And so I notice it, and I might wince inwardly, but I let it pass. Um, I do, you know, I mean, if they're paying me, I'll correct them, but I don't. <laughs> Unless I, somebody has asked me to help that's a, his English, I leave it alone. Yeah, that's a good rule. Unless they're paying you, maybe <laughs> maybe stay quiet. Right. Uh, talk to me about Between You and Me. This is a, this is a peeve of mine as well. This is, and you put it in the title. Yeah, now that's one that I did correct a friend um, who was an English teacher, a creative writing teacher, and a person who was the head of an English department at a well-known university who said once that somebody sent flowers to Susan and I, and I grumbled, Susan and me. (laughs) And she said, it's it's dialogue, meaning in conversation you can get away with things. And, And that's true. I think if she had wrote it down, she would notice that it should be between Susan and me. So, you know, the trick, of course, is just to put yourself first, and you would never say they sent flowers to I and Susan. You'd say me. So we know. We don't need even to know the rule. You know, your ear tells you what is correct in that instance. But um, people are just being polite. President Obama does it, you know, says, um, thank you for everything you've done for Michelle and I, and he, he, he would also, if he put himself first, know it should be me and Michelle. And once you know which, ver- which pronoun it is that you need, then you just put it back at the end where it belongs and you're being correct and you're being polite at the same time. Mm-hmm. Now, this is where politeness maybe gets us into trouble. But yeah, that's a good rule. If you, if you just put you know, the personal pronoun first, you'll, you'll see immediately. Right. Uh, let's go to uh, caller, Bill in Wellsville. Bill, uh, welcome to the program. Glad you called. Yes, uh, I'm a retired teacher of 38 years, uh, and and I, uh, I I I read the newspaper, the local one, and I see a lot of things that shouldn't be there. I guess they're using the uh, spell check, and, and and it's missing a lot of things. I thought that they had people that would uh, check that and make make sure it's. Uh, correct. I also I'm hearing people put er on the end of everything rather than saying uh, more beautiful. They say beautifuler, <laughs> similar things to that. <laughs> is is that where it's going now? And and we can't stop it, or 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 what? I, I it, see. It just bothers me. Yeah, that's. Well, <laughs> I'm hearing that as well, Bill. I never heard beautifuler. I confess I've used the word funnest myself, <laughs> and I've had people look at me like, are you crazy? I thought you were a grammar queen, 
And I don't think there's any point in being too much of a zealot about it. Um, my way of looking at that is that it may be the way things are going, but it doesn't mean that we have to talk like that. And so, you know, you just draw the line at yourself. I'm not going to talk like that. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Bill. Um, yes, uh, I'm really glad that you have this uh, this uh, woman on and it's it's wonderful that somebody's talking about it thank you thanks thanks bill <laughs> appreciate that I, I imagine you know probably a lot of teachers who uh you know try do their best that's that's one way they can influence the language going forward at least the students that they teach right um and he mentioned the newspapers uh that uh reminded me of uh, one of my favorite language uh, mistakes in a newspaper and uh, this was uh, growing up. So people know I'm from Vernal, so yes, it was the Vernal Express. Very fine newspaper, but this was this happened to be in their paper. Um, there was an accident um, on the road to Flaming Gorge, and a, ro- a, a truck went off the road, and they used a wench to get the the uh, the truck out, <laughs> and. My father, who's an English uh, major, that's why I think where I got my, my love of language, uh, he he just laughed until you know tears came out of his eyes and pointed it to all the family, and that you know it, it could be fun. It could be fun as well. You make a little mistake. They didn't intend to make that, I'm sure. But yes, that is that is the trouble with spell check. That spell check would not recognize that a wench would not be. You know, the context would get <laughs> right. past right. spell check and. Uh, I love the idea of a wench helping yeah. out in that. Yeah, that's a, it's a, a sturdy wench, you know, getting that out of the, out of the truck out of the... Possibly carrying a tray, yeah, of, a tray of beers, you <laughs> tray know. Of beers, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's, it's kind of fun. Um, I, I wonder, we're moving into the digital age, and uh, I wonder what spell check and autocorrect is doing for us or to us. Well, I worry that spellcheck is making um, kids lazy because they don't have to learn how to spell. They don't have to memorize it. They can always just Google it and find out how it's spelled. But then again, it's a wonderful tool for them to use. So there's, um, you know, it's two, it's two-sided. It's a double-edged thing. Um, autocorrect drives me crazy, and I wish I knew how to disable it. I should just take it to somebody in the office and say, turn this off. Um, because it, you know, if I start to type something, it predicts what I'm trying to say, and I find that immensely annoying. And if I make a little typo, it makes up a word, and again, you know, it, it, it doesn't make any sense at all. And unless you're very careful and read things over, it sends out the most absurd messages, you know. I have in the book an example I tried to type to somebody in a text, Gute Nacht, just, you know, playfully saying goodnight in German. And the autocorrect doesn't know German, so it changed it to cute nachos. <laughs> Which, you know, that's nice, but not that's not what you intended. No, yeah, I mean, I'm sure my friend was amused. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. She thought, I don't remember leaving any nachos in her room. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, is... Is English uniquely troublesome? I'm, English is very hard to spell because there's no, and English doesn't follow its rules. Spanish, for example, is very, very regular. But uh, you, I think you've you've learned uh, Italian. You have experience with some other languages. Well, there's nothing like studying another language to help you with English, and and that's fair. You know, you have to 
learn the ways other people do it, and you have to compare it to English to figure out why they're doing it or how they're doing it, and, and that English is your frame of reference, and it teaches you about English. Um, the difficulty of English, the spelling is, of course, crazy, and there have been efforts to reform it. Noah Webster was among those, but mo mainly Webster was just trying to separate an American language. It was a revolutionary act at the time to establish American English against British English. This was during the Revolutionary War, and that was his own personal rebellion. But those changes were really very conservative you know, spelling color without the U, the C-O-L-O-R instead of C-O-L-O-U-R. And he spelled theater with an E-R at the end, not an R-E. The New Yorker actually has a Francophile and a British tendency, so we spell theater with an R-E. If English is uh, more of a problem than other languages, I wonder if it isn't because it's all over the place, you know? It just is more noticeable. Mm. Yeah, it could be. I'd like to talk a little bit about um, about, about gender. Um, you have a chapter on on this, um, and in this past, I'll have you have you read page seventy five. But uh, first of all, it's anyone who's learned a foreign language uh, knows that the gender can be troublesome. Uh, other languages, uh, every word is assigned a gender, masculine or feminine. And for example, as you note in your book, masculinity is feminine, and feminism is masculine in French, at least. Yes, what is the logic of that? <laughs> uh, and, and so you, so you go on to say English carries a secret burden of gender. What are you talking about there? Well, we do have all those words like ship and even a car. We, we, will, we will call them she, you know, and, it, and I, a harp is also, I, I know a lot of harpists, and the, my harp teacher always said, that harps were she, they were, they were feminine. Um, our difficulty in, in our time is in finding a way to refer to somebody whose gender is irrelevant, and maybe, it, maybe what you're trying to say is he and she, and there's no one word that, that we can use for both of those, you have to say he, she, or uh, what is happening now is people are using they and mm. their. And grammarians, the prescriptivists, have a hard time with that because it's very hard on the ear. You're used, you want a singular, a singular pronoun to match its antecedent. And uh, the plural one, if you're a stickler, just doesn't work. And the way a lot of usage experts get around it is they just are calling it the singular there, as if calling it singular made it singular. Um, that is the way it's going, though. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that we're, I think we're going to be seeing that more and more. People do it in conversation all the time. Yeah, that, that is a, a interesting problem that we're, yeah, we're trying to grapple with. Let's go to our next caller, uh, Denny in Cedar City. Denny, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Yes, good morning. Good morning. I, uh, one idiom I hear um, here in Utah is use guys. Uh, when referring to those people over there, those guys, it comes out use guys. So that's, really? that's uh, one that my ears uh, pick up on. Yeah. Um, but I'd like 
your guest to uh, up with a rule on the difference between farther and further. Well, okay. Um, the general rule is that farther refers to actual, literal distance covered. You know, that store is about a mile farther down the road. And further is more conceptual. For instance, you can take an idea further. Um, I could think of some other examples. Um, she got, she is, let's see, how far along is she in her pregnancy? Uh, she, I think that would be a distance one. She is farther along than I am. Um, I think it gets a little ambiguous, though, because sometimes an actual distance um, or a conceptual idea can seem to refer more to distance, and and they kind of merge at some point for me, and I don't know which one to use. But in general, if you just remember that farther refers to literal distance and further refers to something more conceptual like she's further in her career or um, let us take these plans further. I think that's very helpful. Thank you. Hmm. Thanks, Denny. I hope so. Yeah. I hope you guys uh, do well there in Cedar City. It's, <laughs> yeah, I haven't, uh, Denny, I haven't heard that one. So you, you're hearing that, I guess, you guys. Oh, you I haven't heard that, heard that as a third person, yeah. uh, as, as meaning those guys. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that Denny, you're, you are hearing that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Have a great day. Thanks. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Denny. Um, I, one that I uh, have heard on occasion, and I, I might be hearing it a little more, I think, not, not just a very small minority of, of, uh, of cases, but uh, have did, which really, <laughs> which really, you know, that's like uh, fingernails on a chalkboard to me. Have did, I have not heard that either, no. <laughs> yeah, well, thankfully, <laughs> <Terrible>. thankfully, <laughs> at least for prescriptivist. Uh, you're listening to a conversation uh, with Mary Norris. Her book is Between You and Me, Confessions of a Comma Queen. It's a New York Times bestseller. It was recommended by several booksellers here in Utah when we did our latest uh, book show. And uh, we're pleased to have Mary Norris uh, with us. Uh, She is uh, detailing experiences of uh, 30 years as copy editor at The New Yorker. We're going to be talking about uh, some of the people she's worked with as well. And we'd love to hear your experience with language. Perhaps you would like to air a grievance. Uh, that's 1-800-826-1495, the number 1-800-826-1495. Or upraxcess at gmail.com is our email, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Uh, one famous uh, one in Utah, at least probably in many areas of the West, is Crick versus Creek. And you, you hear Crick a lot. It's, and, and sometimes we used to it's, say that in Ohio, too. Oh, you do? We okay. always, we had a creeks that we call Big Creek. Yeah. And sometimes people wear that wear it as kind of a badge. They'll they'll purposely say crick. To, I guess to kind of make themselves a man or woman of the people. <laughs> uh, so I wonder um I'd, I'd love to have you it looks like we have another call coming in. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um the subjunctive mood. That's a, that's one that gets people. Yes, that is, um, I deal with that quite briefly in the book, only in the introduction. Um, The subjunctive is that use 
um, for instance, in the song lyric, If I Were a Rich Man, it's, it's used for something that's contrary to fact, that is not true, and also for wishes. I, I wish I were in Dixie, say. <laughs> I think that's the right lyric. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, right. And it's also wearing down. It's not used so much in English. It's used a lot in Italian and in German, and it's just always part of educated speech. And it's still part of educated language in English, but... I guess I think people forgive it a lot. There's uh, there's also the conditional, like if it if it rains, we won't go out, and the, it's called conditional because it's not contrary to fact. It could happen. It may happen. Um, but you would say if it had been raining, but it wasn't raining. So that's actually the um, I think that's the subjunctive. But there again, there's kind of a blurry line. And sometimes people use the subjunctive when they don't need it. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. You hear it both ways. I, I, I for one, I don't know, this for me is one of the key markers of educated speech. And I'm afraid, I'll have to confess, I do judge if, uh, if you don't use that correctly. Now now my friends will be you know nervous speaking around me. But, um, <laughs> but uh, just... I, I'm desperate, I guess, to pull in anything elegant from other languages, and English doesn't have much of this. We, it's, it has the virtue of, the, of ease of use because its, it's grammar is so simple, but here's one thing that we can, we can take that I find elegant, at least, subjunctive mood. Ah, yes, it is elegant, it's true. Properly used, it's very beautiful. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. It's, it's very nice. Uh, so let's go to uh, our next uh, caller, who is uh, Barbara in Hiram. Barbara, glad you called. Thank you. Um, the things that have me yelling at the TV are um, when they say, where are you at? Or, Tell me where you're at. That drives me nuts. And then the, uh, they will say, drive safe. And so I'm, I'm yelling, Lee, Lee, Lee. And then another thing that I don't know if it's strictly Utah or what, but it was I need to go home and unthaw some meat for dinner. <laughs> and and I can I can make jokes out of the unthawing thing because it's so logical that if you unthaw you freeze something, but you cannot yeah, um, yeah. tell someone that they can't tell them that you don't you could just say where are you instead of where are you at, or you can drive safely, uh, but. Some some things you you can't be a zealot about, and I just have to yell at the TV. And uh, some things you can actually make a make a fun thing about, like unthawing. So uh, I have a lot more pet peeves, obviously, but um, those are two of the biggies for Utah. I think. Mm. Thank you. Thanks, Barbara. Mm-hmm. I would I would say dethaw is the proper usage. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, dethaw. There you go. Yeah, I've heard unthaw a lot as well, and I have I have used that on occasion and then caught myself. I'm going to unthaw. Well, I'm going to freeze again. Uh, Our next caller is Jim in Cedar City. Jim, uh, glad you called. Uh, We'll we'll ask you, Jim, to turn down your radio. We're getting an echo there. Well, I just couldn't help myself. I was at. (laughs) <laughs> okay, I'll turn down the radio. Uh, I was a tech, uh, a technical uh, editor for 25 years as a uh, moonlighting job, so I'm very sensitive to the language. <clears throat> I listen to NPR, as you may well know, just 
it's on my house just from the time I wake till I go to bed at night. And I am sensitive to mispronunciations. Uh, the ones I hear the most, I think, although they seem to be correcting it, is <clears throat> realtor for realtor. Homogeneous, when they say homo homogeneous, homogeneous being the correct word. Uh, and I hear that from national NPR. I don't know. I don't know why. Uh, I'm sensitive in, in punctuation to the comma before and and a series of more, you know, three or more uh, adjectives or adverbs. And uh, I use the Chicago Manual of Style, which says you should use the comma there. Uh, I was interested in the a speaker's uh, uh, learning from a foreign language because I didn't know what the subjunctive was until I took Spanish. And so down here when I hear people say, if I was, instead of if I were, that really sort of bugs me. So you see, I have a, a whole lot of things that bug me, but those were some of the major ones. <laughs> yeah, those are those are good ones, Jim. Appreciate those. Okay. Thanks. I'll, I'll, I'll let you continue with the conversation. Okay. Maybe I'll think of other things later. Okay. No, right. that's, Thanks. Thanks, the serial Jim. comma is amazingly controversial. You know, people who like it really feel strongly about it, and people who don't really think that the people who care about it are crazy. I'm, I've been amazed on the book tour that people feel so strongly about it. I like it myself, but... As long as you're consistent, it doesn't really matter which one you go with. Let's uh, go to another break. When we come back, we'll uh, bring in Eric, who has uh, called us, possibly with uh, with his uh, language gripe. And uh, you are welcome to join the conversation with your question or comment as well. Hope that you will. We have another 10 minutes or so left with Mary Norris, author of Between You and Me, Confessions of a Comma Queen. Uh, she has spent uh, some 30 years as a copy editor at the uh, New Yorker. She's a lover of language, as are many of us, and we're talking about language and usage on today's program. The book is the New York Times bestseller. We're glad to have uh, Mary Norris with us. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, proudly celebrating its 40th anniversary, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities. Details at utahhumanities.org. Hi, it's Lynn Rosetto-Casper. This week, we have the story of a college president who dismantled his football team and turned the football field into a garden. Paul Quinn College's We Over Me Farm in Dallas, Texas. That's this week on The Splendid Table, the show about life's appetites from APL. Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah on Utah Public Radio. I'm Tom Williams. My guest today is Mary Norris. Between You and Me, Confessions of a Comma Queen is her book, New York Times bestseller. And uh, we are airing our grammar and usage grievances. You're welcome to uh, join us in the conversation at 1-800-826-1495. Call now. Just have another 10 minutes left. 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. Our next caller up is Eric. Eric, glad you called. Go ahead. 
Thank you. I've, I've got a couple of expressions I've been hearing that I wonder about. Uh, one is people are saying one of the only, which seems strange to me since only means one. <laughs> so how can you have a part of one? And the other one is woken up. And I'm wondering if woken up is okay now instead of awakened. Thanks, Eric. One of the only is one of my big ones. I, uh, that just grates on me, but uh, I try to keep it to my <laughs> myself, except in <laughs> except in these uh, cases where we're openly airing our grievances. So thank thank you for that, Eric. Well, one of the only doesn't bother me. Um, woked up, or did you say woke it woke woken up? Woken up, yeah. Woken up. I don't know that. I am a little bit confused myself about awakening and waking up um woken up sounds a little strained to me though i don't think mm -hmm. that i'd use that i'd have to review the principal parts of the verb and see what the usage is to say anything really comprehensible on that subject but i think woken up is probably permissible in some circumstances uh, well, yeah, woken up is one that I think is in such common use, at least in, I guess, in my circles, um, that if I say awakened, I feel, <laughs> I feel like I'm putting on airs. And so I use woken up. Yeah, it up. does sound stiff, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Our next caller is uh, Sean. Uh, Sean, welcome to the program. Go ahead with your question or comment. Hi, um, just responding to something that another caller named Jim said. He was talking about how he didn't know what the subjunctive was until he started studying Spanish and then how that started to bother him before and I thought that was a bit interesting because he probably misused the subjunctive up until that point and not to mention that he he said that mispronounce he's sensitive to mispronunciations and that word is uh, some people believe that word to be pr uh, pronounced as mispronunciation um, so uh, we're, we're just uh, a little bit bothered by that kind of prescriptivist attitude toward language. Uh, you, you're bothered by a prescriptivist attitude, are you? Right. Mm -hmm. Well, we think that language is fluid and that, generally speaking, um, people use language as they will and, and that, uh, you know, we kind of think that language is something it's like an it's like a natural thing that occurs in nature and that to say that somebody's using language incorrectly is a little bit silly thank you for that appreciate that sean and uh we do have a, a couple of uh, emails here let me uh get to uh, get to those uh first of all get a comment from mary norris what, what what do you think i guess when you set out to uh you know to be accurate and especially mm -hmm. if you correct others, uh, you when you yourself make a mistake, <laughs> leaves you leaves well, you open. You know? I I thought it was ironic that he was correcting your pronunciation of mispronunciation. That really is highly ironic. Also, yes. that he is somebody. He put it very well that the language is, is like a fountain. It just burbles up, and it is a natural thing, and, and that's true. But um, for 
it is still funny that he corrected you, you know. I mean, your language burbled up, too, <laughs> <laughs> not just his. And mm-hmm. and I, I do think I'm very interested that people who have this point of view, and they're, you know, it's a, a legitimate point of view, and it's true. Language is nature. Um, that they feel so strongly about the prescriptivist because, you know, we're just... We're watching our fountain of language a little more carefully than they are, and that's the way we use language. And I don't think that we're to be condemned or made fun of for that, you know? And everybody's sense of language, it's like what baseball team you root for. You don't choose, you know, it just develops. Mm -hmm. And at least we don't have uh, an academy, and we don't have fines for for misusage like they do in France. Right. Yes, right. it doesn't do them a lot of good in France. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> they can't no, it prevent doesn't. the invasion of English, can no, they? <laughs> no. Yeah, we all <laughs> we piled on each other for language now we're piling on the French. I'm sorry. I didn't I didn't mean to go. <laughs> so, um, here is uh, we have uh, three uh, comments and questions by email. Let's uh, go to email here. Email by the way is upraxis at gmail.com. You could get a quick uh, comment in by uh, by phone or by email, upraxis at gmail.com and 1-800-826-1495. Sarah in Logan says, good morning. I was wondering if Mary Norris could comment on the past tense form of the verb squeeze. I asked because when I first came to Utah, I heard a form I had never heard before, and I'm curious how widespread it might be. Thank you, as always, for having interesting guests. So past tense form of squeeze. Well, probably what she heard was squoze, huh? Yeah. Um, Squeeze? Squeezed, right? Have squeezed. I don't think squoze is um, um, anything except a bit of a joke. Yeah. <laughs> Although I've heard it, I've heard it. I think I probably used it, squoze. But I, but it, I feel. Well, but when you've I, used it humorously, I'm sure. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I guess if I'm <laughs> if I'm confessing, I may be have used it non-humorously. But it, when I say it right now, it's it feels wrong. Well, I can look this up in the dictionary while we're talking okay. and see what it says, but I'm pretty sure that squoze won't be in here. <laughs> okay. Next up is Steve. Um, what your caller Jim, who called out the pronunciation of real realtor, may not realize is that realtor is actually a trademark, though it seems to be entering the language as a synonym for real estate agent, as Kleenex has come to mean facial tissues of any brand. Uh, so thanks for that, Steve. And I, I wonder... Uh, but I think Steve would pronounce it realtor and not realtor. Uh, which <laughs> That's one that we come up against sometimes because people do use the word realtor without realizing that it comes from an organization of real estate agents who have unionized, or I don't know if they've unionized, but they belong, it's a trademarked word. They belong to this organization, and you can use it, but you have to capitalize it. And we will change that to real estate agent. Styrofoam is another one that you're supposed to call plastic foam. And somebody writes plastic foam. I don't know what they're talking about. So styrofoam is also supposed Mm. to be capitalized. So is, of all things, dumpster. Oh, really? Hmm. Yeah. I thought, you know, dumpster is just another one of those funny, jokey words. And I myself am contributing to the language by lowercasing dumpster when I come to it. But um, I suppose there's some somebody who invented that word and who invented that form of garbage can who would write in and and make me capitalize it. Yeah, that's an, an example how dynamic language is, and we we reach out for the, you know the word that we feel best. 
conveys the meaning. Uh, here is Chad in Roosevelt. One of my pet peeves is when people say everybody doesn't rather than not everybody does. For example, everybody doesn't have a cell phone rather than not everybody has a cell phone. Makes it sound like nobody does rather than somebody doesn't. That is a confusing usage. I haven't heard that, but I would avoid it instinctively, I think. Yeah, yeah that's a good one, Chad. Um, and here is uh, Bennett. Um, want to know um, how she feels about rap and her thoughts on the ways rap artists have used the English language. I have had some trouble with with rap only because, well, the music will set aside, but the whole culture, I've had to copy edit and proofread pieces about rap stars. And they're full of quotations from their Twitter accounts and emails and even from album covers and the obscenities and profane language. I, it's not that I disapprove at all. It's just that it is my job to make sure they're all spelled correctly <laughs> and to spend a day or sometimes several days or a week reading these tweets with all the profanities in them and making sure that that all of the profane words are spelled right, it will blow out one of my circuits, you know, and I'll start thinking that nothing matters anymore and we can print anything we want, which is, we, which means that you should go to rehab, you know, <laughs> if you're a copy editor. That's not right. a good sign. Right. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Steve wrote back in and says, sheetrock as well, and the generic is drywall. So that's another example. I wanted to yeah. have you just, uh, we just have a couple of minutes. And so maybe the fast version of this. I found a very, very pointed example of where language meets life is, is the uh, experience of your brother, D, who uh, is a transgender. Yes, you'll have to say my sister D. Your sister D. Uh, yes, see, I fell into the right. trap there. Mm-hmm. So your sister D at this point, and so you had a transition where you didn't even realize you were saying he when, and that was hurting her feelings. Yes, yes, um, it was when D was just starting her transition, and we were in Cleveland together, and I was having enough trouble calling her D, um, and. When I found I, you know, we were at a restaurant, we ordered, the waiter set the food down, said the waiter said, cheeseburger, and I said, that's his. And I didn't know what I had said wrong, but all of a sudden, Dee was about to burst into tears, and she said to me, you say his, and you don't even realize you've said it. And that was when I, I realized two things. One was that it was going to be really hard to change my pronouns. I'd been calling D a him and he all my life. And, you know, you don't learn that over a different way in a half hour. And the other was how hard it was for her to be referred to as him. And it was that. It was seeing how much it meant to her that made me make the effort to use the pronoun she wanted me to use. Hmm. Yeah, an example of the, the, the power simple things in language can have. Um, we are at the end of our time. There's much else in the book. Between You and Me, Confessions of a Comma Queen. The author is Mary Norris. So you'll have to read the book to, to hear some stories about Pauline Kael and Philip Roth and, and others. Uh, it's, it's a fun read. New York Times bestseller. And uh, it's been our pleasure, Mary Norris, to have you on Access Utah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for everybody who responded uh, to the program. Uh, Another indication that uh, public radio community 
loves language. We're going to turn to music on the program tomorrow. We'll be talking with Matthias Mach, who's at the Royal Academy of Engineering Research. Uh, uh, he's at Queen Mary University of London. Uh, and this is title in the conversation.com, How We Discovered Three Revolutions of American Pop. He took evolutionary science, applied it to pop music. We're going to talk about that and hear some pop music on the program tomorrow. Hope you'll join us following uh, uh, tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. Richard Wagner's operas are so dramatic, they're sometimes an inch away from self-parody. Coming up, the Cleveland Orchestra gives a serious and seriously great performance of The Ride of the Valkyries, plus Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd mocking Wagner as well. I'm Fred Child. Join me for the next performance today from APM. Monday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. UPR's business underwriters support the station and expose their products, services, and events to our loyal listeners. Let our listeners know by becoming a UPR program sponsor. For information on underwriting, please call Terry Guy at 435-797-3215. Thank you. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.